Hello, everyone. This is Edward Mayberry with the San Antonio Public Library Tuned In Podcast Team. Today, we have Dan Garcia. Hello. Good afternoon. And we have two special guests from the YWCA, Coda and Myra. Hi, everyone. Hello. So today, we're going to tackle a very serious subject that we find very dear to our hearts and minds, racial justice. Coda is the Director of Racial Justice and Gender Equity at the YWCA. Coda, can you share some light on the subject for us real quick? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the work that Myra and I are engaged in uh, at the YWCA is the work, of, is justice work fundamentally. When we talk about racial justice, we're talking about, uh, you know, the systematic fair treatment of people um, and especially looking at, uh, you know, results, equitable opportunities and outcomes uh, for everyone. And we see the largest disparities. We see racial injustice in those outcomes, right? Um, health disparities by race and ethnicity, educational outcomes, economic asset building, wealth gaps, all of these things that are varying based on our gender and our, our race and ethnicity. So when we talk about envisioning a world where there is racial justice, we talk about you know, creating uh, a true opportunity for people to achieve their greatest potential in life regardless of their race, ethnicity, or the community in which they grow up, because you hear this often, right? Your zip code shouldn't determine the chances of you graduating college, owning a home, um, and being, you know, finding, you know, the, the e accessing the economic uh, mobility ladder. Um, so, you know, I don't know if you want to add to that, uh, Myra, um, that's sort of, you know, a generalized way of understanding racial justice. No, I think uh, that that's perfect describing that. So thank you for having us here today. Awesome. Th thank you very much for joining us today. So I guess my so my immediate question um, is, you know, when, when I have conversations about this, I'm usually having conversations about this with people that I know and people with whom my particular views on this topic are generally aligned. How do you start a conversation about racial justice with people whose views are not aligned? And 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 this is because I've experienced it from from uh, not just you know uh, I've experienced from people of totally different races, even people of my own who don't won't admit or who don't perceive the fact that there is an issue. They just don't. They just don't see it. How do you start that conversation with somebody of any race who doesn't have a, a you know who doesn't perceive that the way you perceive it? It's a really good question, and it's actually something that we talked about um, in our staff meeting yesterday. Is you know, number one, why is it so hard to talk about race, um, and why is it even harder to talk about race with folks who perhaps don't share in our worldview? Um, and maybe haven't experienced the things that we have experienced. They haven't been on the receiving side of oppressive policies. Um, and I think, you know, how do you start that conversation? And I know Maida has some good insight here because she has a background in community organizing and in bringing people together. Um, uh, but I think, you know, one of the most important things, uh, just as you're starting this conversation, as we do, you know, with different organizations and folks is, is 
is creating a, a common understanding uh, of what it is that we're trying to get to at the end, right? Is that there are gaps that exist, very real gaps um, and opportunities and access. And these uh, numbers, they're, they're, they exist in numerical data, but the reality is that they affect people's livelihood every day. Um, but I know Myra ha has something to contribute here. Like I said, she has a fantastic background in organizing. Um, so I'll pass it over to Myra. Thank you, Coda. Um, I, I love that you're asking that question, uh, Dan, because um, I think that's that's a problem right now where we stay in our bubbles, where we stay with the people who think and look like us. And that's not going to address the issue of talking of the, the tough uh, conversations. So as Coda mentioned, um, my background in San Antonio has been mostly in community organizing and um, that my main job was to bring together people who are not from the same background, not, that don't agree on how to address an issue. But as uh, one of my mentors told me when I started organizing, he said, okay, you see this uh, pothole, you see this hole in the street. He said, and in that street there, you're going to see a Muslim and an atheist and a, a brown and a black and a white person passing by. So if we focus on that issue, then we're going to see, okay, it's affecting us all. So that can help us bring to uh, come and do something about it together. And when I start, because we all principle, over principle sometimes in, in many of our issues, especially those that affected us the most, I go back to this essay. Um, I, I like to read it over and over. It's called On the Importance of Being on Principle. It's by Randall. It was written in the 30s. And I can't believe every time I read it, it still sounds so like it's happening now. Uh, because... I think now most than ever, we need that dialogue with people who don't think and look like us because that's how we're going to have those tough conversations. I have a question. So you speak of systematic racism, how economical factors, social factors, your zip code, how that right there may determine for some reason how you may be treated or perceived and it limits your, your ability to achieve anything. So I also have the thought that a lot of racism is inbred due to the fact of when you come home, your kids may hear, oh, this, this black guy at work, he's always late. This Mexican guy at work, he's always talking in Spanish. This black guy at work is doing this. So the kids hear this repeatedly, 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 and they always form opinion of what they hear from the parents. So they don't even have a choice when they grow up to have their own opinion. Even though the black guy may be coming in to work because he has to do something else, the, the, the Hispanic guy might be coming in to work or speaking Spanish because he's talking to somebody else in Spanish. But it's always that perceived notion of that filtered lens that they see these things in. So how can we educate and try to change these lenses so that they're not rose filtered lenses? Another really good question. And I would almost guess that you guys were at our staff meeting yesterday because somebody brought up a very, very similar question, almost the exact question, um, because you see these experiences in young children. Um, and you're absolutely right right? Um, society. Um, and it's, it's, it's all of these implicit biases that we uh, sort of 
execute um, you know, unconsciously at times um, that reinforce stereotypes about people. And when it comes to children, you know, it is, it is, they are, you you hear it all the time, right? They're sponges, but they really are. They watch everything we say and do. My own kids, I hear them repeat stuff that I said on a phone call, um, you know, some kind of factoid or something, and they'll they'll bust it out in the middle of nowhere. And I'm like, where'd you hear that from? And it's like, oh, I heard you say that on the phone the other day. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, what we try to do, I or I think in an ideal world, how amazing would it be if if, you know, as parents, right, that we're teaching, that we're passing on um, disruptive uh, in a good way, ways of thinking, ways of thinking that disrupt, you know, racism, that disrupt stereotypes, that disrupt biases. But our children are not insulated. They live in a society where they go through institutions, public education, early childhood, right? So they, they travel through those portals as well. Um, and so how, how are these things being presented, if at all, to them in those places, in those institutions, right? We're, we're, we're lucky that at least at YWCA, this is in our mission. So it lives in the DNA of all of the programs we offer, including child, child early childhood. Um, but public school systems, for example, you know, we live in Texas where, you know, uh, one of the laws uh, we were just talking, right, critical race theory, these things that prevent us from t accessing the truth, right, especially younger minds, the truth about the history of how this nation came to be, um, that it, it has become, um, you know, whitewashed, right? And so, we have to navigate in our own spheres as parents, as you know, members of whatever network we are, and how are we helping disrupt those stereotypes for children or the children in our lives? Um, Myra, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. I mean, that's, that's perfect. Um, and yes, I, I like the what you're saying about the institutions, because that's, I mean, we can preach and learn and whatever you want to call it. But if the institutions are not doing anything about it, nothing's going to change. Our children are going to be doing the same than our generation. Uh, so I think that we have to talk more about that. What are our institutions that affect our families are actually doing to address racism? It's interesting to me that the, I mean, the institutions, we'll take the schools, for example, that, you know, because of legislation are actually it apparently seemingly taking a step in the wrong direction. Um, and I know that political action is one of the things, one of the answers to um, to addressing racism. I know that activism is uh, is one of the avenues for addressing racism. But and I, I mean, in a in a state like Texas, uh, where, I mean, the deck is certainly um, stacked against uh, members, certain members of the population. How do you, you know, how do you, how do you get out? I mean, I, I know getting out and calling your uh, representatives, being active, making your voice heard is, is a way, but a lot of times it just kind of feels like you're shouting like at a brick wall that's not going to move. How do you, you know, how do you remain positive in something in a situation like that? 
And it's, it's, um, it's exactly that frustration, right? Um, you know, given our, the, our the sort of state of things, um, for, uh, excuse the pun, but in the state of Texas, right? Um, it, it can be discouraging, but you know what? Uh, the other day, my daughter, um, my, my daughter said something to me, um, uh, about, so she's seven. And she said something about voting and she said something like, oh, but I wish I could vote, but I'm just a kid. She said, I'm just a kid, mommy. And, um, but I grabbed that opportunity and I took it as an opportunity to sort of start building in her, um, her, her agency. And that while she can't vote yet, she can, you know, start sort of, uh, building a, a worldview that is compassionate that is loving, that is open. And I, I think about, I think about sort of my daughter feeling that kind of like helplessness from I'm just a kid, I can't vote. And then we have adults that can vote, um, but they also feel frustrated, uh, like we're landlocked and we can't make progress. But, you know, I think, I think the thing that we hold on to in this mission, in this journey um, is that yes, 100%, we want to get to the point where we're moving policies, creating opportunities for minoritized groups. Um, then there's also the individual journey that in the work that we do that individually, we are on this journey as well, and that we're continuing to grow and to evolve, um, so that then we can continue, uh, to find it in us to fight, right. Uh, for these policies, um, and for that change, I do want to remark um, just as a as a way to to build on on uh, in terms of resources. So the YWC is certainly a, an absolutely important resource in in educating oneself about about systemic racism, about how you can you know how you can challenge it. Um, but also just you know the reminder that the library is there as well, and you know that we have we have resources. Uh, that that can help uh, people uh, inform themselves because I think that's one of the things that that happens a lot is that people will see what's going on in the news but they won't necessarily dig deeper than that um, and a lot of times it seems to me like uh, individuals will formulate an opinion uh, or a point of view just based on what's what you know what's being fed through them to them through one channel, as opposed to uh, that then inspiring the desire to go out and delve a little bit further, look, you know, into the history of the issues. Um, I think the YMCA and the library are, are sort of poised to help people make that connection um, if, if, you know, if they're interested. But um, any, any thoughts, any ideas of how you can hook somebody into uh making use of those resources it's it's one thing to set the resource down in front of them right uh but how, how do we get them to bite yeah and i you know i do want to echo that because you know we are big we are big uh, in my family we are big library library family like we go every weekend and i cannot tell you how much i appreciate how the diversity in in the 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 books especially children's books how that has grown over time i feel like i've watched it in the last 7 years grow and just being able to access those books so that my daughter can find herself in in those characters and relate 
um, and find her culture. That has been so important. So you're absolutely right about the resources that the library can provide. Um, in terms of, you know, how do you how do you get folks to engage with the content? How do you get folks to, um, you know, possibly go on on their own racial justice learning journey? And that's all, that's that's also a tricky question. Um, and I I'm not gonna. I'm not going to steal Myra's words, but I'm going to ask her to talk about it because I learned this from her. You know, she says you meet people where they are. Um, so I'll let Myra expand on that. Thanks, Coda. Um, yes, um, again, um, most of this has been from my organizing experience. And I mean, when you go out in the community on the ground, you can't come and say, this is the way, this is what you have to do. This is what uh, the righteous thing to do, right? Because that's the right thing to do. Um, you actually know these people, right? You get to know them. You, you get to know their stories, why they believe what they believe, why they have interest on X or Y. And then you start understanding, okay, this person, is their, their own interests too, because that, believe me, that opened doors about any conversations. So when I go and meet someone, I don't come with Maida's interests. Of course I have my, my self-interest, which I'm gonna bring some, some, somewhere. But when I meet someone about important issues, about solving a problem in the community, I wanna know what is their interest and why they want to grow on a specific or why they want to work in an issue. And sometimes it's not exactly of what I want, but I know that if I address that, he's or she, uh, they're going to be open to the conversation. And then we can start taking action together. Um, and I don't know, Koda, you want me to share a little bit of this outside story? Because um, that, that's, that's a great example. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was organizing parents in Southside ISD because they were not allowed in the campus if they didn't have a Texas or American ID. And that is plain racism. Uh, that you can't call it other way. But we did not go with big signs outside the school saying, oh, the school is racist, uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, which is, it's okay. Sometimes you have to do that. But what we did is to find out first all the power dynamics in the organization, which in this, case, in this case, this school district. We found out why is that they were interested on at that point. And then we found out the strength of our parents who were incredible, talented families in that, in that district. And um, at the end of the fight, which was very tense because we did not see things the right, the same way, we had very little in common, that institution and the families, their backgrounds, the language, everything, name it. But at the end, it was they, the families demonstrated the value that they were for this institution. So they had no other way but to accept what our demands were. But it was beyond activism. It was beyond understanding racism, right and wrong. It was like, I had to meet these people where they are, and then we're gonna sit down and find a solution. But again, if we goes back to the beginning of the conversation, these are really tough conversations. And I don't think we're still 
anywhere near having those open conversations between people who don't agree, people who are not in this in the same page. So I, I want to exp- go ahead, Dan. Go ahead. So I think that one of the things about these difficult conversations, I mean, they're intimidating, right? And a lot of people just sort of automatically perceive the fact or or they they think they think immediately about confrontation. They think they're, you know, if I try to open this topic with somebody, if I try to address what I perceive as uh, some sort of racist activity that's taking place or some like, you know, just like a disequity that's that's happening that they have to be prepared to to be confrontational. Um, and in, and I think in certain instances, that's probably true, but not in all instances. And I, I think in some instances, folks, people do these things and they don't think about it. Like what, like when I, okay, I'll give you an example. So for the, the first time, well, I'm not a native to San Antonio. I moved here from, from uh, El Paso um, and I came here uh, to pursue my education. And one of the first things, one of the first questions that I got asked by people who had grown up here in San Antonio was, where did I graduate from? They wanted to know what high school I went to. And it didn't dawn on me until later on that that was an attempt to sort of classify me so that they could make a judgment and decide if he's a West Sider, he's this way. If he's a South Sider, he's this way. If he's a North Sider, he's this way. But if he went to like Antonian or to, you know, Providence or, or one of the private schools, then that's a whole different category. It was delightful for me to totally confound them by telling them the school that I that I graduated from in El Paso because then they didn't really know what to do with me. But it, it didn't strike me until much later on. It's like, oh my God, that's a really racist question. Like, it, I mean, the element is, is in there. It's also classes. It's also, you know, there's a whole other, a whole bunch of other things that are kind of operating under there. And I think that if I might've taken some offense to that, if I had sort of perceived that when the question was asked, but it's it's interesting to me that these are, you know, that it happens so casually. And I think a lot of times people do it casually and don't really realize it. And but if you some people are receptive to the idea, if you point it out to them, they'll be like, oh, my God, you're right. I you know, I didn't I didn't realize it, you know, but some people will definitely like dig in and get, you know, confrontational and, and what have you. So I think. I think that I agree with Myra that, you know, these are discussions that have to be, they have to be done. And sometimes you just have to kind of be prepared to, for what's going to, you know, the the path that that's going to take. Yeah. And I want to highlight, you know, in the example you just gave, right, because there's implicit bias and then there's explicit bias, Um, you know, explicit bias, something that I've gotten before, uh, you know, are you, are you legal? Are you, are you here illegally? Right. Um, and then you have your more kind of implicit bias, uh, that, that operates in the subconscious. Uh, and it may not necessarily mean that you're a racist. It's just that society has normalized a lot of stereotypes for people and they might fall into them, right. Assuming things because you went to a certain high school or you grew up in a certain part of town. Um, and so, you know, I think I, I just, I wanted to highlight that that's a really, really important point um, that you made there, Dan, because um, in learning about racism and exploring what does racial justice mean, you know, there's, there's so many different ways of understanding how we as humans 
um, operate in this world and the things that we engage in. And we don't even know, right? Like, you know, these biases, sometimes we do it actively, which come out in the form of a very explicit uh, way of, of talking to people. But but both of you are right. These are conversations that we have to have if we're going to confront the, you know, the truth about the systemic injustices, then we have to be prepared um, to be on the receiving end, um, right, of, 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 of some of these reactions, which sometimes they're aggressive, sometimes they're denial. People will just flat out deny, no, this world is, is equitable, right? But we all know, even in teaching and in education, right, like the colorblind approach is not the way. It doesn't teach anything. Um, and so I just wanted to, to highlight that because it was a good good point you brought in there, Dan. I just want to touch point on Dan's previous mention and Coda's previous mention also about the CRT and then the education factor. I've always been the belief that knowing your background, knowing your heritage, knowing your history, your family history will help contribute to the person you want to be. And without CRT, there's a big gap that's being missed out because we're learning about the generalized history, not our specific history of our people or your generation or things of that nature. So the library is an excellent resource to learn about those things, you know, because a lot of things you don't learn about in school. You just get a, a small percentage of education from a school. A lot of it has to be outside school. So you always have to pursue that on your own. Also, one thing I treasure, and I mean, everybody in my generation treasures, our grandparents would tell us stories about the hardships they went through. And it gives you a perspective of, it prepares you of what can happen. You don't want it to happen, but it's happened before. It could happen again. And you probably experience it. But having that knowledge of this actually happened, it will happen again. It goes beyond the newsreels, the books and pictures, actually hearing a family member tell you about the atrocities they experienced or the triumphs they experienced helps you gain a better knowledge of yourself and the way things are going in the world. So I just want to add that tidbit to that also. It's so important. Storytelling is another way we bring people together and we find the commonalities um, just as humans, right? Um, but storytelling is just such a powerful vehicle to show folks, right? When we're talking about racial inequality, when we're talking about, you know, San Antonio is has a, like a 17% poverty poverty rate, um, you know, compared to to the to the national poverty rate, which is, you know, like 11.4% uh, or something like that. Um, what does that actually look like? Well, let me show you through the face of this woman, right? Um, and, and sharing those stories. And what does that mean like in the everyday life of, of folks? Because yes, you know, we, we, we know how policy we, uh, affects outcomes and we know about the outcomes. We hear about educational attainment rates, graduation rates. Um, but what does that look like? Uh, I think that's telling these stories and talking to people about what that looks like in real life is so valuable um, and in a super important way to also talk about racial uh, equity and racial injustice. I completely agree. So I want to reach another point and you could chime in. I have the impression, it's my belief, it's Edward's belief, that racism, racist actions, or this bias has been, it's been fluctuated between covert and overt between the last, I want to say since 08. So 08, there was a big change in America. 
And things started to change as an African-American man, I could see things change. And after that person left office, another person came in office, and it was a huge change. And it's hard to determine or it's hard to, you can't identify that person there is that, this person there is that. It seems like it's more covert, but it's overt or explicit or implicit, as you mentioned before. How can we help identify these type of racist actions and try to combat them? Such another really good question, right? Which is the question of how are we complicit in upholding white supremacy? How are we complicit as individuals in upholding um, what has been standardized and normalized to a certain extent by, um, you know, the white perspective? Um, And so we ask that of ourselves, but also of the organizations and institutions around us, Um, you know, uh, dressing up as BIPOC uh, individuals in, during Halloween, not okay. But because of you know society, there came a point where that was normalized and it was okay, right? Naming certain uh, professional leagues after a racial or ethnic group, not okay, right? But society normalized that. And so we are undoing the work of what is what has become the sort of you know the 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 standard set by the white body, um, and we are undoing that work. Um, and it is a little bit of you know individual action, right? At what point do you feel comfortable in in saying to your family member, "Hey, don't say that. That's not okay." You know, Myra had a really good example yesterday at staff meeting of of a conversation she had with her with her mother is like, "Hey, that's not acceptable to say." You know, I I you, those are that's the sort of individual level action. And then in your networks or your workplace or your institution, right, where you find yourself, because we don't live in a vacuum, to what degree, you know, are they um, subscribing to harmful uh, narratives, stereotypes, uh, or reinforcing those perspectives that fundamentally are racist and uphold white supremacy? Um, Myra, I don't know if you want to chime in. No, I think... um... Um, yes, we, as I think the, the problem is because sometimes we are very, we, we don't want to make people upset. We are always trying to protect the, you know, the status quo, even though we are a nonprofits and all that, but we continue not challenging enough. Um, I see San Antonio still very conservative in the, in those matters. Uh, you go to meetings and it's uh, like with, you know, community members and it's an echo chamber. We all, yes, 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 and clapping to each other. But what, what, are, what are we really doing? What are we, when are we going to have these rough conversations? And, um, and it's, it's hard to break that. It's hard to break that. Um, so I appreciate that, that we're having this conversation today. And like Koda said um, about a story I share, it was my, my grandmother. Um, who uh, told me when I married um, a European man from Belgium, she told me, oh, you in, in Spanish, vas a mejorar la raza. You're going to improve the race. And that's a very, um, she was not an excep- exception. That's a very common comment in Mexico because I was raised in Monterrey. 
and you hear it a lot. Whenever you marry a lighter person than you, they say that a lot. And we still use it in our families. And they say, ay, qué bonito, porque está güerito. You know, he's so cute because, you know, he's blonde. Or um, it's it, many, many other examples I can go on and on. But unless we start disrupting that, with the, starting from our home, um, we're going to continue the same patterns. Yeah, and that's that colorism, right? So, you know, at the beginning of our racial justice learning journey, it's important that we go through these concepts so that we put a name to what it is that, to, to what the action is, right? So colorism, uh, you know, the valuing of lighter skin individuals, even though, you know, they, they may be of the same, you know, racial or ethnic background. Um, if you think just kind of geographically Mexico, that, that uh, Maida mentioned, it, it happens a lot in Mexico. Um, it happens a lot all over the world. Um, it happens in families, you know, and uh, so that's why, you know, these naming these these concepts and then tying them to real world examples is so valuable because then we see how they play out in our own lives. Um, and then that informs us, uh, informs us so that next time we we you know see that situation uh, that we might ourselves be able to call it out. Um, but the work isn't just incumbent upon us, right? Because we're the we're the folks of color in the room, um, and there are a lot of folks, um, you know, white non-Hispanic folks in positions of power, um, and so those allies, uh, there's work for them too. Yes, I agree. And as you mentioned, it's uh, this is a pretty brown and, and black room, and I'm pretty sure we've all experienced our challenges with racism, racist actions, and I'm pretty sure. I would say maybe 99.9% of people of color have experienced it. If they haven't, I'll throw that red challenge flag and rewind the tape and I'll put it out to you because you may not know what's happening, but it's happening. So we just need to be more aware and identify what it is that we're being treated. Why am I being treated differently? Why is the situation different for me than it is for this other person? Why? Ask the question why. It's the most difficult question you want to ask. You never want to have a child ask you the question why because there's no answer to a child. But sometimes in some situations, you need to ask the question why. And don't just be happy with a, with a plain Jane answer. Explain to me why this person got this job over me when I have 12 years experience and a degree. This person just graduated from high school. Why is that? Ask those questions because if they can't defend it, then it's wrong. And I think we need to raise those conversations with ourselves, educate our kids, and just start the conversation Conversate and educate. That's what we need to do to raise awareness about this conversation. Coda, did you want to talk about the um, the challenge? Yeah. So we uh, we at the YWCA, we have something called the 21-Day Challenge. And what it is, it's um, just an email challenge. You sign up uh, one time a day you you for 21 days you'll receive an email with something to read watch or listen to to grow your understanding of social and racial um uh, justice and the issues 
that uh, we are currently grappling with um, locally, nationally, and globally. So we do tie in, you know, we, we give it a San Antonio angle. You know, we there there's some conversations out there about, you know, what is the environmental impact of uh, something like Fiesta and which communities in San Antonio does that impact most? Um, you know, very, very thought-provoking content in the, in the 21 days. And so it's free. We encourage folks to sign up. We do them um, twice a year. Um, we are the first YWCA in the country to um, have a bilingual 21-day uh, challenge. So we offer it in English and in Spanish. You know, part of the work of, of dismantling a racist, uh, uh, racism and racist policies and practices for us is acknowledging language uh, supremacy and breaking that down. So we want to offer the content in Spanish um, and we're going to continue to do that. Um, encourage, I encourage folks to, to sign up and, you know, I've, I've gotten feedback as folks have forwarded me emails because we've had folks of a different mindset sign up for it. And, you know, they've written long emails about like, you know, you know, I, I read this, um, you know, I disagree with these things, but, you know, it's helping, it's helping bring in a different perspective. So, you know, yes, we want to continue to grow, uh, but we also want to share it with folks who may have never, wouldn't otherwise ever be exposed to an article about disparities in how black and brown patients are treated in the, at the hospital, right? Um, and so we, we are, you know, my dream is, you know, how wonderful would it be if we were all, the, if the whole city was taking the 21 day challenge and we could have conversations about, about these topics. Something like this definitely raises awareness. Um, and I think that that's really probably a good first step um, in, in, in addressing topics about systemic racism and social justice is you kind of have to know um, what's going on out there. Because if you really, if you bury your head in the sand and you don't, you know, you don't look at the news because it's uncomfortable, you don't listen to your neighbors because what they have to say maybe doesn't affect you, you know, um, until you really sort of peel the blinders back. And I know that it's hard. It's difficult for people who live and perceive the world from a position of advantage to understand what happens to those of us who are not living uh, life from a position of advantage. And um, but I think something like this challenge is a good way to kind of get you at least get your feet wet. It's kind of safe, right? Because it's it's an it's an email. It's something that you read. It's something that you watch. And maybe that will, you know, inspire people to dig a little deeper, at least open some eyes so that they can say, Oh, my God, this is, you know, this is happening. It's really, I mean, I don't know how you could say it's not but, but that's just that's just me, you know. Yeah, no, I agree. I, um, that's, that's the hope, right. Um, and, you know, yeah, absolutely. There's going to be some folks that as, as you said, you know, bury their head in the sand because it's uncomfortable. It's, it's disrupting a very comfortable life that, uh, hasn't been disrupted with the reality of having to deal with, uh, you know, experiencing discrimination and racism, um, and being treated unfairly or paid unjustly. Um, but it's something that has to happen again, if we, as a society are going to confront, uh, these disparities, then we have to be real. Um, this is a very low ask, right? It, it's, it's just an email. 
Um, it's, it's, you, you have to click the button to read the article. So I guess that's the, 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 the big ask, but, um, the hope is that folks will be willing to, to engage with that content. Yes. I hope we can be able to include that link. We put out the podcast in the description. We'll definitely include that on there. This has been an interesting conversation. And I think we have to revisit this because we just not even the tip of the iceberg with this. It's just so many topics, so many different levels, so many different layers, like a glass onion, my beautiful reference that you can talk to that is just, it's just mind boggling. And you hit a perfect point. You can be comfortable and be oblivious to what's happening to you, but you have to speak up or it will never change. You have to speak up or it never change. Dennis, you want to chime in? I just, I mean, I want to, I just want to say that, you know, I, I really, I feel strongly that this uh, conversation needs a part two and probably a part three and maybe even a part four and five, um, because there, there's just so many, many, many layers to this that, that I, I, I feel that we've done a fairly good job of talking about it, you know, of sort of peeling back the first layer, but there are, there's so much more left uh, that can be talked about that, you know, that really needs to, I think, be be revealed. And and, and it, the hope, of course, is that these conversations will inspire somebody to to look at the world with their eyes, you know, open and, and realize that, you know, this is something that's affecting people. It's affecting people, you know, it's affecting people, even the people you don't know, but, you know, that that's that you connect. Those connections are what make people that bring understanding. You know, so if you can get people to sort of sympathize with uh, with people that they wouldn't normally have contact with, then I think that definitely moves you in the right direction. This is one of the reasons that we do these. Absolutely. Absolutely. Before we end, I want to thank Myra, the new kid on the block, for being in sync with Coda. That's so funny. Sorry about that. Think about that was a, that was great. That was really good. I liked it. <laughs> you got NSYNC in there. You got you kids on the block. <laughs> you just need it, Backstreet Boys. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't think of Backstreet Boys. That's, I was going to say all those big puns. And you won't be a distractor anymore. But there you go. Thank you so much. And before we finish, we didn't do this last time. I forgot to ask the question: What is your preference, tacos or burritos? And this is not a racist question. It's the San Antonio question. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I never even knew that there was an alternative to a taco growing up. So it's going to have to be the taco. I'm a fronterista from the border and that's where the best tacos live. Uh, just saying. <laughs> Myra? Well, I am from Monterrey and my goodness, the tacos there are as good as it could be. So to me, a real taco is the ones from the corners in Las Esquinas de Monterrey. <laughs> I'm like the best Monterrey. That sounds delicious. Uh, the, the best tacos I ever had growing up were from the street vendors in the Ciudad Juarez. So, I mean, there's something to be said about that. Yeah. 100, I, you know, Fronteriza, we had access to Nuevo Laredo. Same thing. Best tacos. Hop over the bridge, uh, mm -hmm. the carretones. I mean, best place. Yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Very interesting. Again, thank you so much. It was a wonderful conversation. We definitely had to do, like Dan said, A through Z on this. I only put numbers behind it. But this is very enlightening. It's very thought-provoking. And we really do appreciate your expertise and your knowledge on the subject. And please reach out to YWCA if you have any questions. 
come to the library, we can help you guide you on your journey. If you want to look for any insight on any racism, injustice, or just want to get a background on yourself, we're here to help. Thank you again and have a wonderful day. Hey, thanks for listening and get connected on mysapple.org with Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Snapchat, Pinterest, Flickr, Instagram, and follow tuned in on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play Music.